Well, back in chapter 17 of Revelation, we considered the judgment of God upon the vast ecumenical system of apostasy and error in the religious realm. In the tribulation, following the removal of the true church in the rapture, all of the remaining professing Christians only, professing only, will join together in a worldwide ecumenical church. This is the false church. Where will it be headquartered, as we learned last week, on the city of Seven Hills? It will be headquartered in Rome. And not only will all these professing Christians embrace one another, but they will embrace those of other faiths as well. Fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith and one's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ will be irrelevant. It will not matter in this apostate church. Uh, We learned that this church, from the Bible's own description of her, she is described as a great whore, a harlot, who will ride initially, at least, upon the back of the beast, the Antichrist. However, in the middle of the tribulation, after having merely used her in order to gain his own position of power in the world, he, the Antichrist, will turn on her suddenly and he will utterly destroy her. He will merely have used her for his own purposes. Yet as he used her, God, we found out, will be using him in order to execute his own judgment, God's judgment upon the religious system which had its roots in Babel of old. So this then will be the end of Mother Babylon. Well now in chapter 18, the Apostle John next learned about the future fall of materialistic Babylon, the other vast international system which finds its roots in ancient Babel. So as opposed to the ecumenical Babylon that we looked at last time in chapter 17, we will learn here today in chapter 18 of the eventual doom of economical Babylon. Whereas the Babylonian harlot, the whore of chapter 17, is religious in character, the Babylonian harlot system of chapter 18 is commercial in character ecumenical Babylon will be destroyed in the middle of the tribulation and destroyed by the Antichrist, as we just talked about, and his ten-nation kingdom. Well, economical Babylon will be destroyed at the end of the tribulation by way of the vile judgments, the bold judgments. And they, of course, are the direct judgments of God himself. Therefore, contrary to what some would teach... These two Babylons, the Babylon of chapter 17 and the Babylon of chapter 18, are not one and the same. They are rather two ungodly systems, one being false religion and the other being materialism, which had their origin. Both of them had their origin in the long ago building of both the tower and the city of Babel. That is where men first attempted to do their own thing without God without considering God. Now, the relevancy of today's lesson for our own day, I do not think we can miss because we certainly, certainly live in a very materialistic world, not only here in the United States of abundance, but it's something that is worldwide. 
We're living in a time when people all over the world are preoccupied with luxuries, with money, with pleasures, with comfort, with prosperity, and just with the accumulation of things, stuff, you know, gathering stuff so that you can dust it and clean it and then sell it one day in a yard sale <laughs> to get some more money to buy some more stuff. <laughs> well, we know, of course, that there are very poor countries in the world and there are many, many very poor people, but the rulers of these nations are also obsessed with ways to overcome their poverty and to be wealthy, like the other countries that are wealthy. And very often, such ways to make their countries wealthy include wars with other nations. Most wars are fought over uh, money and greed and having more, you know, to get, get somebody else's land, to get somebody else's goods. And so we see that our whole world is really obsessed with being better off economically. And, of course, rulers want to make themselves more politically powerful. However, as materialistic as our world has become, and it really doesn't take much more than one trip to a, a mall, just go up to a, I was in a mall down in Greenville, South Carolina this weekend, and it's, it's just very tempting, isn't it, to walk through a mall and see everything. It's amazing how many different products, just how many different perfumes. We went to a perfume counter. I mean, how can you decide which, we have too many things, just too much to tempt us. But as bad as it has gotten, it's going to get even worse in the final world system of materialism, which is going to exist during the tribulation period. When the church is removed, the true church, and then evil and greed freely have their way, totally unhindered by the presence of the Holy Spirit, then materialism is going to dominate. The Bible teaches that men either love God, they love and serve God, or they love and serve the world. The true lovers of God, you see, are going to be removed at the rapture of the church. And so all who will be left here on the world will be those who loved and served it, the world. <clears throat> Fortunately, as we've learned in our study, many of these people will be convicted of their sinful hearts and their lost condition, and they will turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in genuine faith, many of them consequently losing their lives for doing so. However, the rest of the world will become even more preoccupied with the things of this world, which is a very basic definition of materialism, being obsessed with the things of this world. This materialistic world will be headed up by who? The Antichrist, the same one we've been talking about, who heads up everything in the world in the tribulation. It will be headed up by the Antichrist, who is who will be bringing, of course, a, a temporary false peace. To the world, and when he does this, this will initially cause a great economic boom for all of the nations when finally there is, you know, this peace on earth. It's a false peace and it only lasts three and a half years, but it will bring great, a great economic uh, lift to the world. And then producing a one-world monetary system by way of his mandatory use of his mark, the mark of the beast, 
will also open the door for vast international trading and banking, and all people will hail the beast for his great wonder in improving the economies of the nations. Men will gladly, therefore, worship the beast because he will have succeeded in padding their wallets and helping their bank accounts. You see, it will not really be the beast, the Antichrist, that they will love. It will be that other beast, that beast called Mammon, which they really love. And yet they, they, will, they will be merely willing to give their external worship to the man who has improved the situation of their bank accounts. They don't really love him. They love what he's done for their economy. Same situation I am afraid we have in this country today. Well, many opinions have been given as to whether Babylon, the Babylon described for us in chapter 18, whether this Babylon refers to a literal city or if it refers to a symbolic Babylonian system. Now, some tell us that this refers to the literal Babylon, you know, the city or Babel, originally built by Nimrod and later ruled by Hammurabi and Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Some say that this is literal Babylon, and they claim that Babylon, which has been in ruins for many centuries, will be rebuilt and that it will become the commercial center of the world during the time of the Antichrist, during the tribulation. Now, it is true that Saddam Hussein has spent over $1 billion in rebuilding the ancient city of Babylon. So those who take this chapter 18 Babylon to be rebuilt Babylon have been very excited because he has been rebuilding it. It's got a long way to do go yet, but um, this is the famous Ishtar Gates. That's an actual photograph of how they have refurbished uh, it. And it's, it's magnificent. It's beautiful. We'll talk about Babylon and how magnificent it was in the ancient days. But basically, Saddam Hussein is doing this in order to attract tourists and, you know, to bring in the tourist money. He is doing it so that Babylon can be a tourist center in Iraq. And also he is doing it as a monument to himself. I have read somewhere, and I couldn't find the article, but I've read somewhere that he is having his name inscribed on every single brick that is being... Has anybody else... Can somebody confirm that? Does anybody know? I think I read that somewhere. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised a bit if he was doing that, having his name on every brick that goes into place. But there is very little indication that ancient Babylon which is located far inland, you know, not near any major seaport, far inland, and also located in a very volatile country, would you not say Iraq is very volatile, and headed up by a, an egotistical maniac. It's, it's very, there's very little indication, at least at this point in time, that this place would become the banking and commercial headquarters of the world. Perhaps it will, but it doesn't look like it right now. Now, others have insisted that commercial Babylon here in chapter 18 is the city of Rome. 
But that might be because they confuse the religious Babylon of chapter 17 with the materialistic Babylon that we have described for us in chapter 18. Some think that these are one and the same, and therefore they say that this Babylon is also headquartered in Rome. Now, while Rome's destruction would definitely affect the whole world religiously, especially during the tribulation, the first half of the tribulation days, because that's where the ecumenical church will be headquartered, yet Rome's destruction would not utterly uh, destroy the world commercially. It just wouldn't. Rome is not a big, major commercial center of the world. It's a big religious center for the world. Well, yet others believe that Babylon is New York City. <laughs> Have you heard that one? And because New York is called the Babylon on the Hudson, on the Hudson River. Some people have referred to it as Babylon, and that may be a very appropriate name for it. But they mention the fact that this very bustling city is the home of international trade and the monetary, mon a monetary headquarters, as well as the location of the United Nations building. So some say that this Babylon is New York City. But in considering whether the Babylon of chapter 18 is a literal city, you know, whether it's a rebuilt Babylon in Iraq or whether it's Rome or New York City or London, we know it can't be Jerusalem because Jerusalem is not going to be utterly destroyed. It is the eternal city, so it cannot be Jerusalem. But whether it's any other major city, Tokyo or Luxembourg City, in Luxembourg, which is, I've been, I was just there at Christmas time, and uh, it is the international um, banking center now of the world, and it is the financial center of the European economic community. Every major bank in the world has a building or is planning to build a building there in Luxembourg, and it is absolutely, you want to take a, has anybody been there recently? You want to take a, a trip into the future, you go to Luxembourg City because every bank, you know how banks are anyway when they build their big buildings, they're just monuments. Well, every bank there from every country, or I mean, they each try to outdo the other, and it is phenomenal. I have never seen so many modern buildings, huge buildings with fancy architecture, and it just goes on mile after mile after mile. It is something to see. So some, some might think it could even be, this Babylon could be uh, Luxembourg City, which is the capital of Luxembourg, the little tiny country of Luxembourg. But, but whether it's a city, a literal city or not, let's ask ourselves this question. What single city on earth is so important that its total destruction would literally halt the merchant traffic of the entire world. What one city? The answer to that question is there is no city on earth that is that important. If New York or London or Tokyo or Rome or Luxembourg City, if any one of those or Chicago, whatever city you want to mention, were destroyed, merchant banking would go on as usual with only some temporary hindrances. So I believe that the Babylon of chapter 18 refers not to a literal city, but to a system, to a worldwide commercial system. 
Babel, originally built by Nimrod, was not only the source of all false religion, but it was also the source of independent commercial government. Until that time, until the Nimrod and the building of Babel, people basically accepted the rule of God. I mean, a lot of people were disobedient, but basically they accepted God's rule. But under Nimrod's leadership, they united, man united, for the first time united in an effort to handle matters their own way. The Tower of Babel was their united effort to reach God their own way rather than his way. And the city that they built around the tower was their altar, so to speak, to the god of Mammon. Babel, of course, which later became Babylon, was most noted for its magnificence and for its luxury. It was a city which measured 15 square miles in area, and it was surrounded by a 56-mile-long wall. Now, this was the Babel, the Babylon under the time of King Nebuchadnezzar that I'm describing for you right now, okay? 15 square miles in area. 56-mile-long wall went around the city. That wall was 350 feet high. Now, a telephone pole is 90 feet tall. This wall was 350 feet high. And not only that, but it extended down into the ground another 35 feet so as to prevent an attack from, you know, an army digging under the wall. So they figured if they went down 35 feet, nobody would dig without being caught. Also, this wall was 87 feet thick. Now, that's almost a telephone pole thick, all right? And that was wide enough for six chariots if you've seen the Ben-Hur movie, <laughs> six chariots to ride one next to another, abreast, across the top of the wall. Around the top of the wall were 250 watchtowers, which were spaced in strategic locations so that they could see any uh, approaching army. Outside of this huge wall, and by the way, there was a double wall. The one I'm describing was the outer wall. There was also another inner wall. Well, outside the outer wall was a large moat which surrounded the city and was kept fill, filled with the water from the nearby Euphrates. Actually, the Euphrates River ran diagonally right through the center of ancient Babylon. And, of course, this moat served as additional protection against attacking armies. The cost to construct this military defense is said to have been in excess of $1 billion. And back in those days, when you consider the fact that slave labor built most of this city, that was a tremendous amount of money, a billion dollars, worth much more than it is today. And today it is still a whole lot of money, isn't it? Now, Babylon was also a place of exquisite beauty. It was the site of the famous Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And that was built by Nebuchadnezzar for his wife. And it consisted of perfectly cut Terraces, one above the other, again to a height of 350 feet. And it was constructed in such a way that the way the water ran through it actually made it air-conditioned. So even though Babylon in Iraq is a very hot place, these hanging gardens were very cool. It was like a, a brilliant air-conditioning system. 
and it had a 10-foot-wide stairway that led all the way to the top. The estimated cost for these hanging gardens alone runs into the millions of dollars. And then there was the Tower of Babel, which was a zigger, called a ziggurat, and it didn't look like this in, in Nebuchadnezzar's day. It looked more like a, a small pyramid. It contained, it had a chapel at the top of it where they worshipped their pagan gods, and it contained one image, one statue, one idol alone, which was reported to be worth $17,500,000. And the vessels in that chapel are estimated to have cost $200 million. King Nebuchadnezzar was seen to be, remember, those of you, oh, there's those Ishtar gates again. Remember we studied Ishtar? This is what those gates are called, the Ishtar Gate. It goes into the city of Babylon. It comes from the name of Semiramis, and that's where we get our word for Easter. It has nothing to do with the true resurrection of Christ. All right, King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter um, 2, I believe it is, was seen to be the head of gold on that large multi-metallic image, that Colossus statue of a, of, a, of a man that he dreamed about. And his kingdom of Babylon was symbolized by gold because he literally built a city of gold. Herodotus, who, who described Babylon to, uh, for us, said that everywhere you looked was gold. The, the city just absolutely shined in the sun with gold. I think he said 22 tons of gold just in the temples alone to the gods. Gold was literally everywhere. If something wasn't made of solid gold, it was plated with gold. So Babylon is seen on that statue as being the, the head of gold. Babylon was not only the seat of the mother-child cult, but it was also the seat of the materialistic cult. In the tribulation period, the world will again be united under the power of the satanic trinity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. They will be united in a global lust for material gain. The world will be united by megabanks and by global merchants and a worldwide trade network, which are already realities today, although not yet under the leadership of a single political leader. So I believe, therefore, that the Babylon of chapter 18 refers not to a literal singular city, whatever city it would be, but I believe it refers to, and I may be wrong, I can't be dogmatic about this, but I believe it refers to the entire commercial economic system which originated in Babel. This system, as we'll find out, will be obliterated. It will be totally obliterated at the end of the tribulation period by the direct judgment of God through, very probably, through those vile judgments when they fall. Now, if we remember, when the final vile judgment is poured out, that seventh vile judgment, all of it were told in Revelation 7... Uh, 16, I've got the wrong verse, it should be 1619, we are told that every city, all the cities of all the nations are going to fall 
Remember that verse back in 1619? It says, and the great city was divided into three parts. That's Jerusalem. And the cities of the nations fell. And as soon as it says that, what's the next thing it says? It says, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So as soon as I, I believe that's what causes the destruction of this worldwide commercial Babylon is that these vile judgments, and in particular that final vile judgment, which destroys all of the cities. And if all the cities of the world are destroyed, then, then the commercial materialistic system comes crashing down, doesn't it? Not one city, everything would keep rolling. But if all the major cities of the world collapse, yes, then we have the end of our materialistic system here on Earth. I agree with Dr. Charles Ryrie, who says this concerning the identification of Babylon. He says, quote, whether the city will be rebuilt once again on the Euphrates, meaning Babylon today in Iraq, he says, is a matter of debate. Nevertheless, the name is used for more than a city in these chapters. It also stands for a system. This is much the same as the way Americans speak of Wall Street or Madison Avenue. They are actual streets, but they also stand for the financial or advertising enterprises. End of quote. So this 18th chapter of Revelation deals with God's ultimate judgment on the system which has replaced him with the love of mammon, the love of money. It contains the prophetic picture of the end of man's united effort to build his own golden city on earth, his own utopia of creature comforts and pleasures and big business and mega banks and Babylon-styled skyscrapers you know, that reach up to the heavens without any consideration of the God who rules the universe and of the Christ who shed his sinless blood for them. Now, our outline for this lesson, which I have entitled Economical Babylon's Fall, is fivefold. We'll be looking at the announcement of the fall, the appeal to flee, the agony of those who fornicated with this system, and then the attitude of the faithful, and we'll close with the absence of the fundamentals. So all of this has been just introduction. <laughs> Let's get into the study. The announcement of the fall, verses 1 to 3. John says, i got to get to the right chapter here. John says, beginning in chapter 18, verse 1, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Another angel from heaven, we are told here, appears to John after the things that he had just seen in chapter 17. Regarding, you know, the fall of ecclesiastical Babylon. Now the word another, which is used there in chapter 1, 
in reference to this angel who now appears to John, the Greek word is alos for another, and that means another of the same kind. So this next angel, which appears to John here, has to be one of the seven bowl angels or vile angels because this is the kind of angel that appeared to John in chapter 17. So he's saying now it's another of the same kind. So this is a vile angel, not V-I-L-E, but (laughs) V-I-A-L, a bowl angel. Now this angel, we are told, comes with great power and also the whole earth is lightened with his glory. So these angels are magnificent, aren't they? They are magnificent to light the earth. And remember the earth, at least the kingdom of the beast, is going to be dark at this time. So the earth will see this angel, apparently, when he appears. And then he cries with a mighty, again, he cries mightily with a strong voice. And his announcement is with regard to the fall of Babylon. His message is actually almost identical to the announcement which was made by the angel back in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. In one of John's visions in that chapter, he saw an angel who had said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So we have here almost the identical message. Once again, just as in the historical fall of the Babylonian Empire, back when King Belshazzar was the ruler, and remember... The hand, the fingers came from out of nowhere and wrote on the wall the words. I don't know if you can see them up there. Many, many tekel eupharsin was written on the wall. And, of course, everybody was just in shock, and they had to find Daniel. And Daniel came in and interpreted what that meant. It meant that God had numbered the days, their days, the days of the Babylonian Empire. He had numbered their days, and he had finally finished enduring it. And Babylon had been weighed in the balances, and she had been found wanting. And now again, this angel basically is saying the same message. This is the handwriting of doom written over Babylonian materialism. She has been weighed in the balances, and she has greatly been found wanting. And God has numbered her days, and he has finally finished enduring her. It will be her day of accounting for her great greed and for her godlessness. So just as literal ancient Babylon was conquered by the Medes... In one night, just one night, I told you how fortified that city was. Well, it just took one night to come in and defeat them and to conquer them. I'll talk about that later. Just as ancient Babylon was conquered in one night, so will materialistic, economical Babylon be destroyed in one hour, we are told in this. And that means a short period, a very short period of time. Remember, those vile judgments are poured out very quickly in rapid-fire succession. They don't take long, and when they're over, Babylon will be gone. Now, Babylon is to be judged because of the magnitude of her sins. The system is given over, we are told, to demonism and to depravity. That's the meaning of verse 2, where it says that she has become the, um, the hold of every foul spirit and a habitation of devils. 
Babylon down through the centuries since Babel. The first, you know, when it was first built, it was called Babel. Ever since Babel was built, Babylon has been and it has continued to be the place of rebellion and demonic influence. It was the demonic influence which caused Nimrod to build his tower in the first place. And it was demonic influence which caused the pride of King Nebuchadnezzar. This was before he was converted. I have happy news to tell you. King Nebuchadnezzar did come to know the true God. But before his conversion, he was very proud. And remember as he was looking out over his city, the the city, which he thought was his city, he said, is not this great Babylon which I have built? That was demonic influence. And again, demonic influence caused King Belshazzar, on the very night that Darius the Mede conquered the city, it was demonic influence that caused that king, King Belshazzar, to use the vessels, the very vessels from God's temple in Jerusalem in order to toast his own pagan gods and to get drunk and then to have a a wild orgy thinking that he and his kingdom were totally unconquerable. In the coming days, the yet future days from where you and I are, it is going to again be demonic influence which will cause men to greed and to lust after money and power and pride and to pride themselves on their own kingdoms while they're thumbing their noses at God, just as Belshazzar did. And these are the same foul spirits which today... These demonic spirits today seek to control men's thoughts and actions. And they're very successful in doing it, aren't they? Many men have just, and women, have totally been controlled by Babylon. Uh, These demonic spirits try to take their minds away from thinking about God and thinking instead, you know, focusing on this world and the things and the power and the money of this world. In the original Greek, you might be interested to know that the word for hold in verse 2, where it says the hold of every foul spirit, and also the same word is used for cage, where it says a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. That word in the Greek is the word for prison. Men think that the way to freedom and that the way to security and to independence is through wealth and through possessions and power and success and big homes and fancy automobiles and nice clothes, etc. But the Holy Spirit indicates to us that the drive and the lust for these things literally cages men. It, it puts a hold on them. It imprisons them within the demonic Babylonian system of materialism. I'm sure we all have met people who are in bondage to materialism. You know, birds here are used as uh, speaking of, they're symbols of Satan and of the fallen angels. And they are frequently, birds are frequently referred to in this way in the scripture. You know, when the seed falls on the ground and the birds come and take it away. Now, another reason for God's judgment of materialistic Babylon is due to her pollution of the whole world. She has committed wicked fornication with the world. Rather than trusting the creator for the supply of her needs, this system has had an unholy alliance with governments and with big businesses which deny God's authority, which deny God. 
the kings and the merchants of the earth, we are told, have waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Just as in the judgment of her sister, we could see these two Babylons as sisters because they are referred to as females, aren't they? A whore, a harlot. Here we're going to see she's described as, as a widow and a queen. That as in the judgment of her sister, who is that great whore of religious Babylon, this economic Babylon is judged for her sin of fornication, which spiritually speaks of her worship of idols. Her idols primarily being mammon, which is another word for money or materialism. That's her one of her main gods is the god of mammon, and her other god is self. And that's an appropriate picture of those two gods in this picture. He worships self and he worships his possessions. This system has intoxicated the people of the world with all its riches and its pleasures and its its delicacies. All these things that it has to offer. And the world does have a lot to offer, doesn't it? It does. I mean, this is a battle we as Christians face all the time. The world has a lot of wonderful things to offer. And this system has catered to those who are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of self, of of God, excuse me, of God, as it says in 2 Timothy 3, 4. The love of pleasures and possessions is nothing more than an insidious form of idolatry, which is demonic in its origin and destructive in its outcome. It is only all too easy for you and I, especially living here in America in in this century, to become fascinated with the things of this world. For by way of material things and temporal pleasures, as I said, the world has a whole lot to offer. However, just like a drink of, of cool wine, as this man is doing, we can very soon find ourselves drinking deeper and deeper and deeper, wanting more and more and more. There is no satisfaction in things, is there? You see that with your children. You buy them a toy, maybe their satisfaction lasts for a day or two. Next thing you know, they want the next one in the series. (laughs) Right? Same thing with us. We're never going to be satisfied by things. Man uses big business and the producing and the selling of things as the biggest excuse for having no time for God. Things and pleasures. But someday, these very same men and women will stand before God to give an account for their lives. And even many Christians, the saddest part of all, is even many Christians have been caught up in this system and they have devoted more of their time, more of their talents, more of their treasures, more of their, you know, their money, more of their energy to serving this system than they have to serving God. Where do you spend most of your time? What is your priority in life? Is it in dusting your things and in taking care of your things and in maintaining your things? Or do you spend more time serving God? Setting your affection on those things that are above and not on those things that are here on earth. Everything here is going to perish one day, so we really shouldn't spend a whole lot of time on it. There's only two things that will endure, and that's God's Word and souls. So if you want to invest in heavenly treasures, 
where the moth nor rust nor nothing ever will decay. They are secure there. That's where we should be spending our time is building up treasures in heaven. It is so easy to get focused down here on earth and to waste a lot of time. I just went, I was just down seeing my children in college down at Bob Jones University, and they had a special service on Sunday afternoon. Um, No, that wasn't where I heard this, but they had a wonderful service on a man that did a soliloquy on Martin Luther. I wish I could get that man to come and do it. He he was like a first person pretending he was Martin Luther, and he gave his testimony. And by the end of it, I was in tears. It was so moving, and I learned a lot about Martin Luther. Did you know he married a converted nun? That he had converted, he converted a whole convent of nuns, and he married one of them named Catherine. <laughs> and then he proceeded to have six children with her, and this was later on in his life. It was really, it was interesting. Did you- I was going to tell you that the man, this, this was a Sunday morning service, he talked about, I guess he had been somewhere or seen it, I don't know if it was on television or what, but he saw this man who got up and was very proud and boasted that he had devoted his entire life to NASCAR. I guess that has something to do with car racing. (laughs) I'm showing my ignorance, but I think that's what it meant. He had devoted his entire life to NASCAR. And this man speaking said, you know, what's he going to do one day when he stands before God and says, I devoted my whole life to NASCAR. You know, what a waste. Is that redeeming time wisely? No, sir. No, sir, what a waste. We really need to put our priorities right. All right, let's move on to the appeal to flee. God, what we're talking about is Christians. God wants his people to separate from this kind of system because he is going to judge this system one day. Let's look at his appeal to flee in verses 4 to 8. John says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven. I like that because, you know, that's what Babel tried to do, wasn't it, originally? Reach up to heaven. Well, she didn't make it, but her sins did. (laughs) And God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. Well, in verse 4, we're told another voice from heaven is heard, and many Bible expositors believe that this voice belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and their main reason for saying so is because he says, Come out of her who? My people. Now, it would be rather presumptuous for an angel to say that. So we do believe this voice belongs to the Lord Jesus. Um, His appeal is to his own people, and this would mean the tribulation saints. However, even though this command is not given directly to you and I as church saints, it does apply to us as well. In all ages, God's people are to separate themselves from those things which are anti-God and worldly. 
Jeremiah had appealed, had made an appeal to the Jewish people with this same kind of message when he was predicting Babylon's fall. Actually, this was a twofold prophecy that Jeremiah gave because he was not only predicting the fall of ancient Babylon, but he was looking ahead through the Holy Spirit and predicting the fall that we read about here in Revelation 18 when he said this. He said, flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity. So you don't want to be connected with her because she's going to be cut off. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense. Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. Babylon is suddenly fallen and destroyed. Howl for her, forsake her, and let us go everyone into his own country, for her judgment reaches unto heaven and is lifted up even to the skies. So as I said, Babylon's tower of stones may not have reached to the sky, but her sins surely have. So God's people are urged to leave Babylon They were urged in the ancient days to leave Babylon, just as Abraham, remember, was urged to leave Ur of the Chaldees, as Lot was urged to leave Sodom, as Moses was urged to leave Egypt. You see, all those places are pictures of the world, the world system. And just as God's people are going to be urged to come out of the, and are urged today, to come out of the Babylonian system of worldwide materialism. They will be urged again in the tribulation. Those who really know God will say, come out from her. The people of God are not of this world system. We're not of it. We're in it. But we are not to be of it. And therefore, when Christians ally themselves with Babylon or with worldly society, even on the assumption, and you hear this sometimes, well, I'm going to, you know, buddy-buddy with the world because I am going to give a testimony to the world and I am going to attempt to change those who are in it. Well, yes, that's what we are supposed to do, but not to affiliate ourselves with it, you know, to to buddy-buddy with it and to get involved in it. People who do this, Christians who do this, are violating the plain teaching of God's Word. I think that one of the saddest commentaries of the Christian witness down through the ages has been Christendom's continual dilution through compromise with the world system. It's tragic, and, and we see this happening so much in our day, and I think this is one of the reasons I do want to teach on false religions and cults, a new new age movement, and even seductions within Christendom next year. It's tragic when we see Christian intellectuals and Christian entertainers and Christian business and professional men and even Christian uh, ministers desiring the recognition and the acclaim of their colleagues who are in the world Babylonian system. They desire the, you know, the praise of men more than the praise of God. This desire, more than anything, has been the downfall of an innumerable number of Christian individuals and institutions over the many years. And it accounts in large for the apostate condition that we find Christendom in today when the church tries to you know, join hands with the world. 
and be like the world. It's the same mistake uh, Constantine made when he tried to draw the pagans into the church by making the church worldly to draw them in. Same mistake all over again. God throughout scripture does deal with the problem of compromise with Babylon. He says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what right hath righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion hath light with darkness and what concord hath Christ with Belial or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel wherefore come out from among them them and be ye what separate saith the Lord and touch not the unclean you see we really have a much better testimony to the world when we are separate from the world and when we are holy and they see something different about us that's what attracts them Not when we look just like them and act just like them and have the same lusts and desires that they have. What many Christians have failed to realize is that an effective witness is not accomplished through compromise. God's words are not here, be, or in 2 Corinthians, they're not, be like her, my people, so that you can attract her and bring her to me. That's not his words. He doesn't ever say that, be like her, so you can attract her. Rather, what does he say? Very explicitly, come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sin. Her sins. So the first reason God's people are to separate themselves from economical Babylon and also ecclesiastical Babylon, by the way, we could throw that in, is so that they might avoid pollution themselves. You know, you don't go into a bar to convert the drunks. They're going to wind up converting you and you're going to have a drink before you get out of there. It just doesn't work that way. Now, the second reason for God's people to separate from Babylon is so that they might be spared the terrible plagues which he is going to send on her because her sins have reached unto heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Nimrod led the first rebels of Babel in a great building project, didn't he? Unto heaven. They tried to make a name for themselves by reaching up to heaven. But the only thing that made it to heaven was the stink of their rebellion. And I love it when it says in Genesis 11 that God came down to look on them. They were trying to build up, but he was still so much higher than them that he had to come down. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the mightiest king Babylon ever had, he dreamed, if you remember this dream in Daniel chapter 4, that he was a great and a strong tree, this big, huge tree whose height reached unto I underlined it here, unto heaven. But what happened to that tree? It was cut down. And Nebuchadnezzar literally, the interpretation of this dream, was that he would live like an animal for seven years. He literally lived like a a cow out in the field for seven long years. That's what it took to convert him. But he did get converted to the true God. Well, Babylon's rebellion, therefore, has been long. It's been going on a long time, millenniums, thousands of years. But God remembers all of her many sins. And at the end of the tribulation, finally, the time will have come for her to drink the cup of his wrath in a double portion. That's what we're told there in verse 6. For what specific sins will Babylon be judged? Well, one, of course, is her evil influence. 
on the nations of the world, which she has seduced with her idolatry and the love of mammon and materialism. And another sin for which she is going to be judged is the sin of her immense pride. In verse 7, the great voice from heaven says this, How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. It sounds like, again, Queen Jezebel, doesn't it? Sitting a widow, and I mean sitting a queen, and being so proud of herself and thinking she would never, ever suffer any sorrow. Any, any sadness. Now, to live deliciously there implies that she lives very proudly in her great luxury, while the masses of the people of the world go without. She makes possessions and pleasures the most important thing in her life while ignoring the needs of the, the poor and the needy of the world. The Babylonian system of commercial enterprise and wealth is very much like the church of the Laodiceans. Remember that church? The lukewarm church? That church thought that she was in need of nothing. She felt rich and increased in good and and very secure. She didn't even need God. She was so proud of herself. She saw herself as very self-sufficient. So this system is much like that church, because that church has become so worldly, it is the world. Now, the world system of materialism will also follow in the steps of the rich farmer, whom God called a, what, a fool in Luke chapter 12. That man was not only materialistic. But he was, you know, he was the one who had so much he had to tear down his barns to build bigger barns to put all his stuff in. He was not only materialistic, but he was very prideful about his abundance because he boasted. He said, I have much goods laid up for many years. I will take my ease and eat, drink, and be merry. But God had other plans for him, didn't he? Which the man had never taken the time See, so many men and women in the world today busy doing this and busy doing that in the world system and making money and and maintaining their things, and they never take the time to consider God and what his plan for them might be. And that's exactly his mistake, and that's why God called him a fool, because that very night God required his soul of him. You know, Y2K is not really the problem. You know what the real problem is? It's not the Y2K problem. It's the WYD problem. This is the issue upon which we should be concentrating. Now you all say, what is the WYD problem? When you die. That's the real issue. And that's a good way to witness somebody, to somebody, at least in these months going into the year 2000, say, Y2K is not, I mean, you're going to get anybody's attention if you say Y2K, because everybody's getting concerned about it. Say, well, that's not the real problem. The real problem that you should be concentrating on is the WYD problem. When you die, where are you going to spend eternity? So anyway, with the crown on her head and with swelling confidence in her heart, the queen monetary system of the world is going to mock the very thought of judgment. 
But just as with the rich fool, and just as with that blasphemous King Belshazzar who thought that his mighty fortress city of Babylon was absolutely unconquerable, just as with those, God is going to say to materialistic Babylon, Thou fool. And all of you caught up in it? You fools. Because this very night your soul is required of thee. And you can't take a U-Haul with you full of your stuff, can you? And in a single hour, Babylon is going to experience the vengeance of God. Vengeance that he has been holding back for centuries and centuries. Proverbs 16:18 says that pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. As is so often the case with individuals, the prosperity and the pride of Babylon will blind her to the coming judgment of God. Trading, perhaps at this right, you know, maybe the day before these vile judgments fall, trading will be very active on the stock market. You know, you'll get all your Dow Jones reports and all this and that, which right now I guess is going like a roller coaster. I don't really keep up with it, but once in a while my email tells me the news and I don't even want to know it. But anyhow, trading might be active on the stock market. Everyone might be very busy buying blue chips right up to the moment of judgment. Just as King Belshazzar and all his colleagues were busy partying, drinking, and blaspheming God by toasting their pagan gods in his vessels. While at that very moment, the enemy was marching right into their city. They had a very clever idea. One of their men said, why don't we dam up the Euphrates River and send the water a different direction, and then we can march right under that 35-foot wall down into the ground on the dried-up Euphrates River bed, which goes right through the city. That's exactly what they did. didn't take them long to do it. Uh, Belshazzar and his friends were having a big party. No soldiers were on guard. They felt so secure that Darius the Mede and his army marched right in and shocked them all when they just took over the city without even firing a shot. Whatever they just, what did they have, bows and arrows, whatever they, I mean, they just took them. Swords, yes, without even doing their sword. Well, anyway, she will, Babylon, I'm going to skip some things. It says there she sits a a queen, she's so proud, she sits a queen who says she's going to be unable to see sorrow, but she will indeed see sorrow because she's going to be forever destroyed. She will never, ever come back into existence again. And you see, she's been trust, she was trusting in a false security. Wealth and earthly treasures are sinking sand. Aren't they? They're false security, sinking sand. They will not withstand the storms of God's wrath. Verse 8 tells us that her plagues are going to come on her in one day. And by the way, the use of the word plagues is what clues us into the fact that it's going to be the vile judgments. Because those are the plagues. God called them the plagues. The bold judgments, full, full with plagues. Her end is going to result in bringing death and mourning and famine, and she is going to be utterly burned with fire. So the kingdom which the Antichrist will have been working on so diligently at establishing for seven years, and which Satan has been building for millenniums, will quickly fall to pieces when the last seven plagues of God are poured out on the earth. Now, let's look at the agony of the fornicators. We're not going to spend much time in this section, so don't panic too bad. When ecumenical Babylon, you know, the one world church Babylon, 
When it's destroyed, we are told that the leaders, the beast and his leaders, they actually rejoice at her death. I mean, they're glad to be done with her. But here, and this is one reason we know these are not the same Babylon, here we are told that when commercial Babylon is destroyed, the world's leaders, the monarchs, the merchants, and the mariners, those who are in the shipping business, are going to greatly mourn and lament her loss. So let's look first of all at the agony of the monarchs. And for this, I'll read verses 9 and 10. It says, And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and live deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burnings. Standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. The kings of the earth who have committed fornication with Babylon have likewise, it tells us, lived deliciously with her. And now they will bewail her destruction and they will lament for her when they see the smoke rising from her ashes. Business and government are going to be and are today so intertwined that the judgment of one is going to affect the other. And the other, the government, is represented by the kings of the the nations, the head of the nations. None of these heads of the nations in this time will have ever dreamed in their wildest dreams, unless they read the book of Revelation, that the political and financial and commercial tower which they had built and which appeared to them so high and lofty and indestructible, they would never have dreamt that it could be so utterly and so completely and so suddenly destroyed. Their wailing will be actually the result of their fear of being caught in the same judgment. It tells us, this is why you see they're they're seen standing afar off. All of these leaders, as we read these verses, we'll see them standing afar off, and that's because they are afraid of also being judged. Judgment is coming, and they know that they are soon going to face the judge himself. And they're right, because as soon as this happens, who's on the horizon already? The Lord Jesus Christ, the judge. We'll see him next week actually returning to judge him. So their fear is is a true fear. Well, not only will the monarchs of the earth wail and lament commercial Babylon, but so too will the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her. And for them, let's look at verses 11 to 16 to see their mourning. It says, And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all fine wood and all manner of... Uh, vessels of ivory and all manner vessels of precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught. And every, oh, Okay, that's where we start the next one about the mariners. 
in a sense, these merchants that we just read about were also kings, in a sense, because they are the kings of banking, they are the kings of shipping and construction and industry and advertising and communications and and giant commerce. The Greek word used for merchants actually is a word which speaks about those who deal in large quantities of trade items. In other words, it's, it's not like, you know, the man who owns the, the local little mom-and-pop store. This is talking about the big guys, those international financiers who are the real power most of the time behind any throne or government. These are the, the experts at receiving land grants and trading monopolies. They're the experts at finding tax loopholes and receiving favors from those whom they, by way of their financial backing, have put into places of political power. Now, why are we told that these merchants weep when they see the judgment of the worldwide economic system? Why are they weeping? Are they weeping in repentance over their sins for having worshipped? the false god of mammon? No, not hardly. Are they weeping over their sin of having accumulated so much wealth at the expense of robbing the poor? No. Are they weeping over the sin of having played little gods themselves by trying to rule the world through their big payoffs to government and political powers? No. Are they even weeping here because they so dearly loved Babylon? and their colleagues who perhaps perished with her. No, not really. They are weeping because of their own financial losses. They are weeping because there is no longer a system whereby any men might buy their merchandise. Their mega banks and their mega corporations and their mega profits are all dried up. Their great industrial empire is in ruins. And with it, their one consuming desire in life is gone. They no longer have a god to worship. And we know already from our study that they do not turn to the true god, do they? Even at this point in time. Now in the verses that follow the weeping of the merchants, John was inspired to give us a list of some of the commodities that brought wealth to these merchants and these monarchs and the mariners, the the shipmasters of the world. There are 28 categories listed here, and these basically, I'm not going to talk about them, but they basically symbolize the merchandise of Babylon. Now, there is nothing wrong with having these things. Nothing wrong with having these things. But the wrong comes when they have us. (laughs) The wrong comes when they are sought in the place of serving and seeking God and living for God. You know, when we become to the when we get to the point where we're living for the things rather than living for God, that's when it becomes wrong. It's the love of money which is the root of all evil. Not money, the love of it, putting it before God, making it an idol. Now the sad end to this long list is a reference, notice at the end of verse 13, to slaves and souls of men, which tells us how low Babylonian commerce stoops in order to fill her vaults with wealth. Wealth. We know that slave trade down through the ages was used as a source of added income. 
But there's also the consideration of the financially lucrative business of forced prostitution, in which men not only amass great wealth for themselves, but they destroy the bodies and the souls of young men and women, and in our day, even of young children who come under their treacherous control. Babylon, remember, is the mother of harlots, not only spiritually but physically as well. And fornication in all varieties is going to be even more rampant, you know, prostitution, more rampant in the tribulation than it is today. And furthermore, we know that there are other forms of slavery. Men, for example, are bought and sold um, by athletic teams. They're traded. And giant corporations seek to control the lives of their executives and their employees more and more with each succeeding year, don't they? And this is a big battle my husband has. He, He just feels like his company wants to own him, body, soul, and spirit. They care very little for how many times they uproot families and you know move them all over the place nor do they care how often they send husbands away from their families or wives away from their families and um, so they treat their personnel as slaves and unfortunately many have succumbed to selling their companies their own souls as people become more and more enslaved to luxury with more and more bills to pay they also find themselves enslaved to the whole economic system. How many people just use that plastic card until they're enslaved for the rest of their lives to paying off their bill, bills? Well, especially under the rule of the, the, uh, the dictatorship of the Antichrist are people going to be enslaved because they will not even be able to buy or sell unless they worship the beast and receive his mark upon them. So in doing this, what are they doing? They are literally selling their souls to Satan. So there we see at the end of verse 13, slaves and souls of men is absolutely correct. The last group to mourn is the mariners. That's the ship masters, and you can read about that on your own. They basically cry the same cry, and they basically do it for the same reason. They say, alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. They're only mourning for Babylon because... They were made rich by her, and now they know all their profits are going to be dried up forever. The attitude of the faithful. Now, I want to ask the question, would it, can you think about your own life? Would it absolutely break your heart if the things that you have accumulated in this life, not the people, not your relationships, but if the things went up in smoke, if you went home? And your house wasn't. Would it absolutely? I mean, now I know that we would be very upset. I would be. You would be. But would it absolutely destroy you? Would it break your heart to the point that you just couldn't function anymore? That would it have taken away your God so that you had no reason left to live? Are our hearts fixed on this world or are they fixed on, the, on heaven? 
they really need to be fixed on heaven. If they're fixed on heaven, then we can do what this next group did, and we can rejoice even when the rest of the world is lamenting. Let's look at verse 20. It says, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. Heaven's reaction to the destruction of commercial Babylon is totally in contrast to the world's reaction, isn't it? Heaven's reaction is that of joy. God will have at long last vindicated his name. And so for the first time in this book of infinite sadness, this is a book of judgment and sadness, Revelation, isn't it? Over and over again, a lot of sadness. For the first time, there is actually a command given to rejoice. This is a command to rejoice for those who are in heaven. Although all the people on earth are going to be uh, sorrowing, believers on earth and in heaven are to rejoice. So there is an amazing change in the tone of this chapter, one of earthly depression to heavenly joy. In particular, we're told here that the apostles and the prophets of God will be able to rejoice. You know why? Because they are the ones who had repeatedly, down through the ages, warned men against the evils of both false religion and the love of mammon the love of money. And they are also the ones, through the inspiration of of God, who told men that eventual judgment would come on both of these Babylonian systems. So John here is saying that they are especially going to have time time of rejoicing because their words will have been fulfilled and their testimonies will have been vindicated and God's name will will be exonerated. Now, to illustrate how suddenly and how totally and how completely will be the annihilation of Babylon, John sees a mighty angel come along in verse 21. Let's look at that. It says, And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. This is just a picture to to show us that never, ever again will this system arise. If you dropped a millstone in the sea is going to sink to the bottom and never ever float back up that's what that is saying then the absence of fundamentals very quickly let's look at verses 21 to 24 and we'll close this just tells us basically not 21 i just read that but 22 to 24 this tells us all the things that will no longer exist on earth They'll, some of these things will come about in the millennial kingdom, but they won't be under the auspices of commercial babblism. They'll be under, you know, Christ's dominion, and they'll be holy rather than worldly. It says in verse 22, And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeteers shall be heard no more at all in thee, and no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee, and the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee, and the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee, and the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall no more shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth, for by their sorceries, and there that could very well also have a reference to drugs, 
were all nations deceived, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. What this is saying essentially is that there's going to be no more music, no more manufacturing, no more millstone. In other words, no more luxuries and no more necessities. The millstone grinds the the bread so that they could eat. Manufacturing produces the things that, you know, basically we need to live. There will be no more weddings. That's speaking of social affairs. There will be no more work. That's a necessity. There will be no more craftsmen. There will be no more candlelight, which for us means no more electricity. Y2K will happen. (laughs) No more electricity. In other words, no more anything because you know what happens with the seventh file judgment? What? The end of the world as we know it. And the Lord comes, and that's what we are going to look at. Next week, if you return, finally we have come to the end, the sad and tragic end of man's sin. We'll come to an end. The next thing we're going to look at, and I can't wait, is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the end of the Antichrist and the end of the false prophet.